Galatians chapter 4, our focus today will be on verses 12 through 20. Galatians 4, 12 through 20. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom, whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, Have mercy on us. Forgive us. For when we have strayed. And forgive us. Whenever we have seen our brothers and sisters. Turn from you our perfect father. And not been in anguish. For their souls. Father, teach us now to do so. Father, I pray for any that might be among us and for the many that are in churches that are full of error and lies that if they genuinely are yours, you would call them to esteem this apostolic gospel of Christ. And I pray we would be ready servants for you to use in that. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Paul now turns from the head to the heart. He appeals to their heart and he pours out his own. That great expositor of the 19th century, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote, We must always realize when we talk to others that the heart is never to be approached directly. I go further, 
The will is never to be approached directly either. He says, this is a most important principle to bear in mind, both in personal dealings and in preaching. The heart is always to be influenced through the understanding. The mind, then the heart, then the will. To lean on the emotions without any kind of appeal to the mind is to manipulate. Turn on your television. Watch the news. Watch a commercial. Or catch a political debate. And you will see this tactic again and again. Lean on the emotion. Try to just immediately exact an emotional response to something. But the last thing that many want you to do is think. So is Paul now trying to play on their emotions, albeit for an ultimate good? No. What Lloyd-Jones advocated or what he protested, was appealing to the emotions directly, not appealing to the emotions altogether. Uh, Lloyd-Jones was an admirer of Jonathan Edwards and certainly would resonate with Edwards' sentiment. I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as possibly I can, provided they are affected with nothing but truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. This is, after all, the apostle who commanded us to rejoice always. And he always, with that command, gave us something to rejoice about. Consider the shape of Paul's letter up to this point. Paul forgoes the normal pleasantries and thanksgiving that open up all his letters and goes directly into a sharp rebuke in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1. 1 and verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Then in 1.11 through 2.16, he argues for his apostleship. And this wasn't personal. He's arguing for his apostleship because in this gospel, he's arguing for the apostolic gospel. And then in chapter 3, he begins to lay down these biblical theological arguments for justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And then, it's on the tail end of this that we come to this personal appeal. His his emotion, his pathos, his, his appeal are all in harmony with this truth. That he's wanting to bring to bear down, not simply upon their minds, but upon their hearts and on their wills as well. He's appealing to the whole of them throughout this letter with the truth. Every line of this letter, nearly, has been packed with emotion. This is Paul's most impassioned letter. 
Paul never presents just the facts, but always the facts wed to, by God's grace, as he's writing as an inspired apostle, the facts wed to the proper emotion as well. It's incredible that the Word of God instructs us not only in what to think, but into how to feel about the very things we are supposed to think about. It's simply that up to this point, the primary emotions that Paul has been demonstrating are shock, holy anger, and zeal. And now, coming to the front, are anguish, tenderness, heartbreak. Paul in this is modeling that wise father of Proverbs who in instructing his son in wisdom doesn't just give the instruction but appeals to him as well. For instance, Proverbs 4, 10-15 Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction and do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not entertain the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it and do not go on. Turn away from it and pass on. And so likewise, Paul has been setting forth life before them, and now he pleads, walk in it. He begins this appeal by addressing them again as, verse 12, brothers. This follows on the heel of verse 11 where he's just said, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He's afraid they might not be brothers. We've seen Paul do this before. You remember chapter 3. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? And there he says, I'm afraid that you suffered in vain. All your suffering means nothing because it will prove to be just a preview of the eternal suffering that awaits your soul if you lean on anything other than Christ. And yet in verse 15, he addresses them again as brothers. He calls it like it is. And as he hopes it will be. He's afraid that he may have labored over over them in vain. But he still holds out hope that he has not miscarried. He's not ready to declare his children spiritually dead at this point. He holds out hope for their repentance. Paul's rebukes are coupled with these addresses and heartfelt pleas. The Galatians could doubt neither his frustration nor his love. Indeed, I think it's in this letter that we find both Paul's most impassioned and sharp rebukes and most tender and heartfelt pleas. Indeed, the passion of his rebuke speaks to the depths of his love for these Galatians. And yet, he does not allow that anger to eclipse the expression of that love. This is a delicate art. May the Spirit teach 
teach it to us as we meditate on this passage. And following the address is the plea from which the following eight verses flow. Verse 12, strictly translated, the plea would come across something like, Become as I, for I as you. He begs, he entreats, he pleads, but what is he asking for in this? Become as I, for I as you. There are two primary options. This could be anchored in what Paul has already said, so that he's asking them to become like him in doctrine and life, the life that accords with that doctrine. Become like him in faith and practice. He wants them to believe in the doctrine of justification by faith, And live a life that accords with that truth. Or this could be anchored to what Paul is about to say. So that he's asking them to become like him in his affection and care for them. For them to reciprocate that back towards him. He has cared for them deeply, but now they treat him with contempt is what we'll see. Well, which is it? Perhaps we could find some guidance in asking how it is that Paul had become like them. Become as I, for I as you. And as soon as you ask that, the locus classicus, the classic text, in this regard, pops into your mind. Does it not? 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now, such condescension and humility is certainly an expression of love. I don't think we need to go outside of Galatians. I think that the most illuminating text along these lines is actually in this letter. It's whenever Paul rebuked Peter for his drawing back from the Gentiles at Antioch. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. When I saw that there, this would be Peter and um, Barnabas... When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul says, Peter, you and I, we live like Gentiles. Because of the gospel, there's a way that the life of these Jews is very Gentile. Certainly the Judaizers wouldn't look at it and say, that's Jewish. Peter's conduct here, though, was not simply unloving in this regard. It was, here's the accusation that stands supreme, not in step with the gospel. It's in that way 
because his conduct wasn't in step with the gospel, that he failed to become like them, and thus an opportunity was missed for him as an apostle, as a teacher, for them to become like him. In other words, what I'm trying to paint before you is that the supreme concern here in this becoming as you and you like me, that kind of impulse, the supreme motive isn't simply merely sheer love, but the gospel. What is it that Paul desires here? That they become like him in reciprocating his affections for them, or that they become like him in doctrine and life? I think the answer is it's both. Because of how this letter's been laid out, I think it's clear that any esteem that Paul goes on to express that he does desire from them towards him, any esteem that he wants is not simply for himself. Man, it felt really good when you loved me and now you're not loving me again. He wants them to regard him in a certain way because he is an apostle of Christ. Because of what that means concerning their attitude toward the gospel. Not simply himself, but towards the truth of God. It isn't that Paul just wants their love, but he wants their love towards him as an expression of their love of the gospel. The same way that Paul wanted them to affirm and acknowledge his apostleship in chapter 2 because of what was at stake in this argument is the same reason he's pleading for this kind of affection towards him in chapter 4. See, there are those who read Galatians 2.12 and 1 Corinthians 9, and they walk away thinking, whatever it takes, whatever we have to do to get a hearing for the gospel, whatever it takes, we'll do it. And that kind of pragmatic approach has led to the most bizarre of events, programs, and practices in the church. Paul, you see, in this context, it's clear that it's not this kind of pragmatic whatever it takes, but it's a principled approach that starts with the gospel, because it's the gospel that inclined his heart towards them, and it's the gospel that inclined their hearts towards the apostle. That's what he's after in this. Following the plea, he goes on to contrast their past treatment of him with that of the present. In the past, verse 12, they did him no wrong. Whenever Paul came to the Galatians, it was because of some ailment. Verse 13. As to what this is, we're clueless. Though if you open any commentary, you won't be hard to find endless speculation as to what it is. The most common guess is that it was some ailment of the eyes, and they reckon this because in verse 15, Paul will say, you would have gouged out your eyes for me. And then they'll also look at chapter 6 and verse 11, where Paul says, look, with which, look at the large letters with which I'm writing to you. Well, I think... Verse 15, Paul is simply speaking metaphorically. 
your love and concern for me was so great, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Just a metaphor of how great they would have, greatly they would have sacrificed for his benefit. And I think Paul's drawing attention to the large letters in, verse, in chapter 6 is simply him emphasizing that he's emphasizing something. I'm writing now, and I'm writing really big. Don't miss that. Whatever the malady, though he comes saying he is a messenger of God incarnate and is in this weak state, they don't despise or scorn him. Rather, they receive him with the highest of honor as though he were an angel of God. The word for angel could be simply translated messenger. That's what the word means. That's what an angel is. And that's what Paul is as an apostle, a messenger of Christ. You remember that Paul has said, chapter 3, that the law came through angels. There was some kind of mediation of angels involved in the reception of the law. Peter says that the gospel is that into which the angels longed to look. 1 Peter 1. Paul comes as an apostle of that into which angels were jealous to understand. That which the law that came through them anticipated, Paul is an apostle of the fulfillment of that. And that's why they receive him not simply as an angel, they receive him as Christ Jesus. Remember Jesus said, Matthew 10, to the twelve, whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. When Jesus sent out the 70, the 72, he told them in Luke 10, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So can you see now why it is that Paul is zealous to reestablish this relationship that they once shared? where He's inclined to them and they were inclined to Him because of the Gospel. As for the present, He asked them two questions. What has become of your blessedness? And have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Take each in turn. What has become of your blessedness? What is this blessedness? I think... It just simply is that which they enjoyed as a result of Paul's gospel ministry among them. The joy, the peace, the sealing and testimony of the Spirit. What's become of it? Because whenever you enjoyed that, you were of such a bent that if plucking out your eyes and giving them to me would make me whole, you would have done it. The feet of the one who brought the gospel to them were so beautiful that they would make themselves ugly that he might be made whole. You enjoyed this blessedness from the gospel such that you, you would have given in this way to me. What's happened to that? And second, he asked, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth. Previously, it was the gospel 
the truth of the gospel that was the fountain of their mutual love and affection. And he's asking now, has that same truth applied to your apostasy become the source of your animosity towards me? See, in telling the truth, is Paul really their enemy? And that question acts as a hinge going to the next section where Paul compares himself with the false teachers. It's not Paul who by the truth is their enemy, but these false teachers who with their flattering lies are their enemy. The false teachers, verse 17, make much of the Galatians. How stark must be the contrast between the ministry of the false teachers that they're experiencing and this letter. They make much of you. False teaching comes in every flavor, but most of it is sweet to the palate, loaded with sugary flattery. Paul gives this warning near the end of Romans. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. All that sugar is to conceal the poison. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. False teachers of the Old Testament flattered the kings with their smooth talk so that they might live plush while the kingdom marched forward to destruction. That's the play of the false teacher. They want to shut you out. What's meant by that? I think Romans just illuminated that for us. By these lies, they cause divisions. The false teachers don't want you to shut you out from their own personal heresy club. They want you to be shut out with them. Cut off from the people of God. And they want this so that they might be made much of. All of us have met that kind of person who liberally gives out compliments, but only because they want them back. Their generosity is a kind of greed. They're always after far more than they intend to give, but with the false teachers, though they're running the same play, they're subtle, like their father the serpent, and mask it in a whole lot of talk about God and others, and religion. Just as the serpent did, it appeared he's all about Eve, and he's concerned for her. He'll be like God. Paul will later say of these false teachers in chapter 6, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Such glory seekers are blind in unbelief. 
Jesus asked the Jews, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And the answer is one cannot. Judaism had become so much glory seeking under the cloak of the garment of the law. The very law which was meant to make one realize their need of the only garment with which one can stand before the holy God of heaven with any hope. And that is the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. But then Paul says something that those zealous to be God-centered might stumble over. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. If you're so God-centered that you never compliment or thank or affirm another, then perhaps your God-centeredness is really self-centered. Paul models this kind of making much of in every one of his letters except this one. But nowhere does he do so so lavishly as with the Philippians. Philippians 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There Paul makes much of them. And he does so for a good purpose. And the supreme good purpose he does it for is to make much of God. Do you notice he didn't simply thank them? He thanked God for them. They're made much of in a way that glorifies God and does them good. It does them good because it glorifies God. It's this way of encouragement that also humbles and leads one towards dependency on God and praise to join in with Paul of praising God for all these things. Paul wants to make much of them for good purposes, not only when he's present and can enjoy the benefits of having made much of them, but when he's absent. But alas, he is absent. And the situation in Galatia is such, he can't make much of them. He's in anguish. He pleads. And even so, though, this letter is full of rebuke. It's full of rebuke wed with tenderness. 
Then can you see then why Paul says, I wish I was present with you? The reason why he wishes he was present so that as he's delivering this rebuke, he can see how they respond. And that if it is with repentance, he could embrace them. But as it is, he's perplexed. Where do they stand in this? And does not all this speak to the value of presence? In trying to model Paul, this is a lesson to learn so easily. It may be hard to train your emotions. God will work on that over the years for them to correspond to truth as we see Paul doing here. But this is a lesson to be taken in so easily. When you have to rebuke, do it to a face. And how they respond, then respond accordingly yourself. But as for Paul's aim, in contrast to the false teachers, whether he's rebuking them, or make much, making much of them. This is what he's laboring for. That Christ be formed in them. He's labor the, laboring over them again as a mother. Hoping for this. Fearful of ma- miscarriage. It's as though he's started all over with the labor pains. In hope that true children of Christ might be. Whenever you minister the gospel, you're genuinely concerned and love that soul. Your soul will be in anguish until the Father grants new birth. But whenever one that you thought and regarded as a brother turns away from Christ... I think the anguish is more intense because the bond of love had grown stronger. It's one who you dined with at the table as a brother who's now turned from your father. And so it is that Paul is in the anguish of childbirth again. Paul often uses the language of being a spiritual father to those he's discipled, but here he uses this very striking metaphor Of that of a mother in labor. You remember on his first missionary journey how Paul's body was taxed as he labored for their birth in Christ. Now his soul is in anguish. Like that of a mother hoping for the life of their child. Paul told the Thessalonians... Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul is pleading with those who have become very dear to Him. 
become as I, for I as you. Fears that those who he has labored over, who are so dear to him, may have been miscarried. And so he's in the anguish, as it were, of a second childbirth for them, that Christ might be formed in them. The life that Paul hopes to come of this labor is life in Christ. It's the life he spoke of in chapter 2 and verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As you look at this text, you might wonder, what can so personal appeal hold an application for us? First, follow Paul's model. If you know a brother or a sister who has strayed from the Father, don't just argue with their head. Plea with their heart. Don't manipulate and just try to play on the emotion. But don't think you've made the right play by just putting forth an argument. And because they don't get it, you're done. Plea with their heart. May our souls be in anguish for those who have strayed from the Father. And may they sense that our anguish isn't personal. But it's because we've known them to stray from the true and living God who gave His Son for sinners. Second, is if you are that sinner. None of us are immune. And let us not be one of those who are naive, such that we don't reckon that there's one among us. Because the heart goes astray long before the hands make obvious what is in the head. If you are that sinner being duped, being led astray, by those who are making much of you. Oh there might be some kind of void that they're feeling. They're making much of you. I ask you is it for a good purpose? Is Christ being formed in you? Hear this plea. There is this truth. And there's no other. That every one of us are damnable, wretched sinners. And our only hope is the amazing grace of the holy God of heaven before whom we deserve nothing but hell. Giving His Son to bear that hell in our place. That if you would but believe and repent, 
There's salvation in Him, but no, there's salvation in no other. And so the plea is turned from anything else upon which you're relying. Do not harden your heart as those did in the wilderness and perish. But return to the God who gave His precious Lamb as the sacrifice to atone for sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Turn from Him and there is nothing but damnation. Let us plea for the souls of sinners. Let's pray. Father, forgive us our hard hearts that don't break at the hard hearts of sinners. Grant repentance to us all. And before our mouths speak the gospel to our brother, may we carry to them to you and anguish of soul that you would grant the new birth. Grant us love and zeal for your gospel, boldness and faithfulness, tenderness and anguish for the glory of your name because you're worthy. In the strong name of Jesus we pray, amen.